I think it's a real interesting report about how a lot of Cadillac dealers, about 150, are exiting the relationship with Cadillac and accepting buyouts because they don't want to go with Cadillac's plans to go into the electric uh, car market. So Cadillac basically gave, came to them with a deal and said, look, you either need to invest in upgrades to sell electric Cadillac cars, uh, about 200 grand for most dealerships, or we're gonna give you a buyout. And apparently the buyouts range between 300 grand and a million dollars, so pretty significant. Um, and 17% of Cadillac's 880 US dealerships took that buyout. Now, a lot of them have other GMC brands, Cadillac's part of GMC, like Chevy Buick, GMC, etc. Um, but it still is interesting that that many decided to part ways with the Cadillac brand. And, you know, the article, which is a Wall Street Journal article, says that, you know, a lot of the reason was that they just don't buy into the whole electric car um, that they're going to take over. Um, and electric car sales are about 2% of the market right now. But, you know, that is growing in certain markets. You know, California is moving towards electric only by, I think, 2027, although that's the current governor proposing to do something when he's no longer around and won't have to enforce it. So we'll see if that, that actually works out. But it's obviously, you know, a shot at a lot of the, the car manufacturers are looking at what Tesla is doing and saying, hey, that's the way things we think things are going. So, you know, we're going to dip our toes at least in that market and see if we can, you know, go ahead and, and make something happen. So it's interesting that Cadillac is saying to its dealers, you have to sell electric cars, you know, and you have to make upgrades in order to do it. And what was interesting, too, is, you know, I didn't realize that uh, electric cars, it would really change the model at dealerships because where dealerships make a lot of their money is in the service and repairs and electric cars don't need the same they don't they don't have i guess the same you know amount of uh, amount of moving parts and you know they're they're not going to um generate the same just general service and repair uh bills that dealerships are used to and they think there's other ways that you know electric car dealerships are going to Make additional revenue, probably in the, um, probably you know leasing out charging stations and things like that. But it's a completely different business model, and I think a lot of the the car dealerships just said, you know, man, we want to stay with the traditional gas model, and we don't want to kind of bet the house on on getting into this, and certainly not to the extent of doing 200 grand in upgrades, and we're not going to sell that many cars in the near future. So you know, very interesting. Remains to be seen if if uh, electric cars take over the world, but Cadillac is certainly betting that, that they are um, because they're jumping into that space and, and it sounds like they're, they're forcing, trying to force their dealers to go along with it. So we'll see if that becomes more of a trend. Um, you know, Tesla is certainly still a juggernaut in that, in that market, but you know, the big, the big players are, are starting to jump in and they're betting that electric cars are gonna be the wave of the future. And if, if they're right, you know, they do have the scale right now, whereas Tesla, you know, Tesla is a great idea and they have a lot of demand, but you know, they, they aren't profitable at this point. So we'll, we'll see if the big car companies, uh, you know, 
if they are able to take over that electric market should it should it eventually come to fruition so we'll see but very interesting that a lot of cadillac dealers are kind of exiting as it stands right now choosing your business battlefield is one of the most important concepts that a business must understand so before you get into you know driving sales marketing you know all of that good stuff even even how your operations are going to work you've got to pick the battlefield the market and the market segment in which you're going to operate and that first depends on whether you're a generalist or a specialist so a generalist is going to be one of the top three sometimes it's four sometimes it's two leaders in a in a market that have economies of scale and, and can produce their good or service cheaper and uh and pass that along to the customer it's going to be very hard for anyone else to compete with them across a broad market strictly because of their uh, of their cost leadership um you know if you're a, a small company and you try and invade their battlefield well, they're just going to be able to cut costs and still have a margin that's higher than yours and drive you out of business. If you're a specialist, you're obviously picking a very narrow segment of the market and you are and, and you are attacking that and you're developing either some brand loyalty, meaning differentiation or a cost structure within that narrow segment that's going to make you extremely competitive and immune from tacky attack even from the larger competitors so you know in theory what do you want well you want the largest battlefield that you can get and still reasonably defend and you know what does that depend on well it depends on the, the competitors in your area first of all whatever you're in the generalists in your area but then also other niche competitors and you want to make sure that you are attacking areas that they don't value um, so, you know, your largest three competitors, you would, I mean, the largest three competitors in your market, you would want to know kind of what are their plans, you know, what are their historical businesses that they will absolutely defend at all costs. You know, a, a conglomerate, whatever they started with, that's their core business and is something that's like, that they're likely to defend to the death in terms of price cuts, whereas a diversification that they may have, they may be a little more willing to, you know, not invest extra resources into that in order to keep it competitive if someone else gets in that market. You know, maybe large competitors, they have a cost structure that, that, that makes them only go after jobs or customers of a certain size. And as long as you stay under that size, you're fine. Maybe they don't go into a specific niche area because it's very specialized and there has to be additional resources committed to it. And maybe that's something that you can go into. Now I'm assuming, you know, if you're listening to this, you're, you're not a, a generalist in our business. We are in some areas and we're not in others. And so our, our approach and strategy is different under each of those circumstances. But you know, you, you always hear these, these, the advice to niche, in certain markets and that's really what you're going after is niches that are not defended heavily by competitors and that's true in any given industry so let's say you know you are a real estate agent well maybe you know the luxury homes 
in this neighborhood comp comprising of you know a, a thousand homes well there's obviously big commissions attached to that and there's probably three or four agents that dominate that market they market heavily into it they um they invest in the community they're they're seen all over the place it's gonna be very expensive and very difficult for you to break in but maybe there's a peripheral market around there that it you'll is is not as heavily dominated by those three agents and you would see that in markets where there's not dominant players where it's widely dispersed those markets are probably not focused on by anyone so there's kind of served by everyone but not very efficiently so you know as you go about in your business if you're that real estate agent that's the type of market that you want to attack is one where there's maybe one dominant person if that it's very fragmented there's a lot of real estate agents serving the market that's a good potential market to go into as opposed to trying to compete in the lucrative high-end market that already has you know three or four agents that are kind of all over it um so that's just just something to think about and that so again that could come apply to any business but think very critically about choosing your battlefield and that involves doing a lot of market research at whatever your capacity is obviously if you don't have anyone to do the market research and you have to do it yourself it's going to be a little more limited and you'll just want to know general information about you know how many who the major players are what their general strategy is down to if you do have some resources maybe you can call you know customers and see what market share you know uh competitors have in that realtor example you know you could at least go into your mls and pull statistics and figure out on an excel spreadsheet you know what are who are the major dominant agents so you can look in a certain area and find an area of houses where there's not a dominant agent that was that'd be something that would take you know probably two or three hours but would give you know a new newer real estate agent a huge amount of benefit kind of in the long term so think about how you can really research your market and develop a strategy to pick your battlefield so that you're not fighting a battle that you can't win in the marketplace. Thoughts on the ride home. It is budget time and what I'm thinking about is how to budget your GNA expenses for 2021 and how to what's the general theory you should be thinking about about what's appropriate for budgeting g and a expenses so first of all oops, excuse me first of all uh let's remind general reminder you got you know your revenue less your cost of goods sold or your direct expenses your direct expenses of producing your product or service that gives you your gross profit less your GNA expenses or indirect expenses. So your GNA expenses are spread over all of your company's service and product offerings. They don't tie to any one service or product. So they do tie, in my opinion, in some manner to your expected net profit growth. So at the end of the day, a company should be getting more efficient over time and I'm going to go over in a minute examples of when this is not the case but if a company is 
growing by 10%, its GNA expenses should definitely grow by no more than 10% and probably less than 10%, almost certainly less than 10%. Because as you get more revenue from selling more products, providing more services, you shouldn't have to automatically add more accounting staff, more marketing staff, you know, more, uh, you're not gonna have to pay your accountant more to file your tax return. You're not gonna have to pay your lawyer more necessarily. Now you are gonna have to pay more for those indirect expenses over time because you're just gonna get to be a bigger company, but it should never be a direct one-to-one -one ratio. Now, what's a good rule of thumb? In my mind, my general rule of thumb would be, and this isn't scientific by any means, your mileage may vary, that your GNA expenses should increase by no more than 80% of your total expected net profit growth. So if you expect your net profits to grow by $1,000 and your GNA expenses are, well, I'm kind of taking this backwards, so let me start from the top. Let's say your revenue is, uh, let's say your revenue is $1,000, your cost of goods sold is $500, that gives, that makes your cost of goods, I'm sorry, that makes your gross margin, uh, your gross profit margin um, $500. Let's say that your GNA expenses are are uh, are 400 so a thousand minus 500 your gross profit is 500 your gene expenses are 400 so your net profit say we're gonna say uh, pretend that's the same as your operating profit here is a hundred bucks so let's say your hundred dollar net profit you expect it to increase to 110 next year 10 percent okay well I don't think that your $400 GNA expenses should increase by 10% to 440. Okay? I think at most they should increase by about 80%. I'm sorry, by 8%. So if your net profit increases by 10%, your GNA expenses should increase by no more than 8%. Okay? So so that would put them at $432. Why do I think that? Number one, it makes sure that you are targeting getting more efficient over time and you're demanding that of your various department leaders to make sure that your margins increase over time. Now, as, as I've said in other videos, your margins, those increasing over time, that's gonna increase your net profits, increase your cash flow. You should be reinvesting that in some way. Um, lowering prices, increasing quality, somewhere along that continuum, okay? But if you are constantly managing your G&A expenses so that you do get more efficient, you will make sure that your net profit margin at least stays the same or hopefully increases so you can improve your cash flow, which you can reinvest in gaining more market share in one way or another. That's either lowering prices or increasing quality. And also, I think that growing your GNA expenses 80% of your expected net profit growth, another thing it does is it covers, 
inevitable ads that you're gonna have during the year. So what always comes up for us is we find that there is a position that we have that's unbudgeted throughout the year and we, we, go, we all decide we really need it, this is strategically important and we wanna do it. That margin between, if we only increase our budgeted GNA growth by 80%, we usually have the funds available to add that position or buy that extra piece of software or whatever it is that we strategically want to invest in, we have the ability to do it without making our GNA growth exceed our net profit growth. And usually it ends up between 85 and 95%. So that's why at the beginning of the year when we target how much do we want our GNA to increase, I really target that 80% range. What are the exceptions to this? Number one, you're a high growth company. If you're a startup, you can't listen to anything I said. Startups need to be focused on market share and they need to be focused on making sure that their gross profit margin is in line with what it ultimately needs to be. Your operating profit is likely to be zero or even negative because you're likely going to have to continue to find new investment to make your company run. At best, a startup can expect to break even usually as it's searching for additional market share. So you can't sit there and cut your marketing, your sales, you know, to keep it in line with your net profit growth because you may not even have any net profits yet. And it does need to bear some relationship, but more importantly, I guess it needs to bear, bear a relationship with what you think your ultimate net profits are, and those are probably losses, plus your what your anticipated fundraising is, and then you need to keep it in line with that in a, in a similar method to what I discussed earlier, pretending almost that those investment dollars are like net profit. So the other reason that what I said may not hold true is if you're having an anomaly of a year where your net profit growth is not as much as it ordinarily would be, but the volume of your work has grown. So COVID's kind of a weird year. Um, I, I, a lot of companies aren't having the sales growth this year and don't necessarily anticipate they're gonna have the sales growth next year. And they may wanna consider investing in their GNA to make sure that they can give raises to their, their, uh, their corporate office staff make sure that you know you can make investments in uh, in pursuing more market share that come in the form of GNA expenses even though you may not have net profit to cover it. Um, I read an article about how Southwest is kind of doubling down right now on their efforts to gain market share through marketing, a variety of things like that. Well, I don't think they did turn a net profit this year, I, I really doubt it. And I don't think they anticipate a lot of growth next year. If they followed my model, they'd say, well, we're not increasing our GNA at all, or we may be decreasing our GNA. But in this environment, they're making a calculated, F, a calculated strategic effort to increase their GNA primarily through marketing in order to gain more market share. And in a recession, in a time period like this, if you can do it because you have the the capital available either in reserves or through uh, raising capital to do that, that's a great idea. You know, Southwest is in a financial position where they're presumably, and I haven't looked at their financials, but I would assume 
They're not heavily in debt to the point that they're you know short on cash. They are able to raise additional capital. So why wouldn't you? This is the perfect time when some of your competitors are naturally gonna be weakened to try and gain more market share. So that's an example of when that keeping your GNA expense growth to 80% of your net profit growth isn't going to apply. But in general, for most businesses, you really want to think about making sure that your GNA expenses for 2021 are growing at no more than 80% of your anticipated net profit growth for 2021. So hope that helped.